Hello, and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Stephen Target, managing partner and principal of our firm. Steve, how are we today? Uh, Mark, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you? No complaints here. All good. So the the Newton Knowledge Podcast will prove meaningful content to our valued advisor community and clients who are interested in learning more about sophisticated insurance-related topics, focusing on estate planning and executive benefits. During our podcast, we focus our discussions on content that will deliver unique insights into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, offering our clients access to the nation's most prestigious insurance carriers, along with innovative products available only through our network. Today, we have the privilege in speaking with Rick Jay, Managing Director at Business Transition Advisors, or BTA. BTA specializes in the design and implementation of employee stock ownership plans, or ESOPs. The firm has over 100 years of combined team experience and has worked with over 40,000 employees, 1,200 stockholders, and $6.1 billion in market value. Rick is responsible for expanding BTA's ESOP investment banking presence and opportunities with the U.S., Prior to BTA, Rick was the, the nation's director of sales and marketing for Southwest Financial Group, which is the leading third-party group benefits designs, consulting, and administrator. He has a very successful career with a variety of other companies following his graduation from UC San Diego. He has spent most of his life in warm weather states such as Florida and California. He's also a recognized speaker at investment, financial services, bank, and broker-dealership conferences, and has been a keynote speaker at regional and national association meetings. He is an instructor on the topics of advanced tax wealth and business entity planning through several advanced accrediting programs. Rick understands the complexities of life insurance products and the application of life insurance in certain sophisticated and advanced situations. Again, it's a privilege to have you here, Rick. How, how is everything? How are you? It's not as warm here in Florida as it should be, but I'm doing fine, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity today. Great. Steve, take it away. Yeah, super. Thanks, Rick. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I think one of the reasons I'm looking forward to it is, you know, many that are listening may not initially be able to draw the correlation between life insurance and ESOP plans. And I think you have a unique understanding of our side of the business, I'll say, in the life insurance space. Um, so I think this will this will help a lot of folks kind of bring these two topics together, these two planning opportunities. And um, certainly with your experience, there's going to be a lot of education presented to our community. So thanks for being with us. And, and without further ado, why don't we get right into it? I'm going to start with kind of a, a softball question, but, you know, not not knowing where everyone's understanding about ESOPs is. Let's start with maybe the most basic of topics, which is explain what an ESOP is in, in the most simple terms. See, it's a great way to start. So, and I think part of it is the um, confusion sometimes that people have in the industry, um, both business owners, along with people that are quote experts in the wealth and insurance planning around the topic. ESOP stands for um, employee stock ownership plans, and the ownership is an important characteristic, which is different than you will he- hear about with ESOPs in the public community, public, uh, the public business community or public company communities, which are employee stock option plans. So we're, we're referencing employee stock ownership plans. And in its simple form, an ESOP is just a method for a business owner to sell 
their business to convert their um, business equity into cash that they can diversify. And you're ultimately selling it to the employees through an equity transfer. It's not too dissimilar to a management buyout, but the key difference with an ESOP is what you'll learn as we continue to talk about this throughout the next half hour is the, you know, the characteristics, the tax benefits, the way it gets funded. And it's simple form an ESOP as a leverage buyout. We borrow money against the um, cash flow of the company. It gets paid off by the tax savings that ultimately takes place when you're an ESOP. And you're ultimately giving the company or transferring the company ownership to the employees. And hopefully that ties into the both the economic philosophy of the business owner along with the philosophical philosophy with the business owner. So in the right circumstances, this can be a win-win. You, you mentioned key characteristics. So let's dive in a little bit now. What, what are some of the key characteristics of an ESOP? The tax benefits are really what's you know sort of the, the tail that wags the dog when it comes to ESOPs from a pure effective or efficiency of the use of capital. There's really a, a number of t- uh, tax benefits, but the first and foremost, when an owner is looking for exit or liquidity planning, when they're looking at selling their business or a portion of their business, all other methodologies create a capital gains at best, sometimes ordinary income taxes to the selling shareholder or partners. And ESOP, one of the fundamental key tax benefits for the shareholder, when they sell their stock structured correctly, the right corporate organization, they can elect something called a 1042. It's the IRS tax code. And it works very similar to a 1031 real estate exchange or a 1035 exchange in the life insurance world. What it allows the owner to do is it allows them to reinvest a portion of of the proceeds from from the stock sale or from the equity sale. And to postpone and under current law, ultimately eliminate the capital gains tax that would be paid. So, you know, depending on what state you're in or in states like Florida and Tennessee, Delaware, North Dakota, Texas and others with no state income tax, the benefit of an ESOP for the selling shareholder is they can postpone and eliminate that dilution that normally is being paid in the form of capital gains tax. And the other benefits are really what help the company to be successful and be competitive and to pay off the debt, because, as I said before, An ESOP is a leveraged buyout. We're basically borrowing money against the cash flow of the company. And so that debt has to be repaid. And how that debt gets repaid with an ESOP makes it very effective. Um, The company either gets a dollar-for-dollar deduction for every dollar of stock that it's purchasing. So depending on whether it's a partial sale where you're selling a portion of your stock to the employees through the ESOP, um, the key is then the deduction that you get for that stock that's being purchased minimizes the ongoing tax obligations to finance that debt. Um, once the company is 100% employee owned through the ESOP trust, which is a qualified profit sharing plan or retirement defined contribution plan, once that stock is owned by that trust that is parsing out or allocating stock or releasing it to employees over time, the company has the ability and the right structure to becoming completely tax exempt. So there's only two, two two legal ways that I'm aware of in the U.S. that you can be a for-profit company and be tax exempt. And that is to be a credit union competing in the banking industry, which is exempt from taxation, and then being an ESOP, a 100% ESOP-based company. And in that circumstance, it's still a for-profit company, but all of the profits and cash flow that it generates stays on the corporate balance sheet and is not diluted for the, from the form of uh, personal income taxes as it distributes a K-1 or um, corporate income taxes if it's a C-Corp. So the byproduct is under the structure of an ESOP, 100% S-Corporation ESOPs ultimately become completely tax exempt. And when you think about it, then the tax savings 
by not paying taxes or having to distribute money for the shareholders to pay taxes, is able to get reallocated to pay the debts. You're really just leaving the company with the same or even in some circumstances more working cash flow um, that provides the liquidity that it needs to not only cover uh, working capital requirements, uh, capital expenditures, but also gives it excess cash flow to fund into various strategies like COLE, life insurance, uh, wealth, uh, wealth uh, managed portfolios and wealth strategies on the corporate balance sheet to build up reserve to handle executive benefits, key man coverages, and ultimately the repurchase liability that we'll talk about shortly. But those yeah. are the key char- those are the real key task characteristics that make that an attractive strategy when you're looking at it over others. Well, they certainly sound like pretty attractive strategies and, and a lot of super reasons why companies may consider the um, transaction to become an ESOP. You know, as all of us know, not every company is the right company for an ESOP. With your experience, are there, are there certain companies or characteristics that you would say um, would lead a company to the consideration of an ESOP? And maybe, you know, on the other side of that is, are there any, you know, definite no's? You would right out, out of the gate say, you know, an ESOP's just not going to be the right the right program for you. Yeah, that's a that's really a fundamental and incredible question to be asking. It should be one every advisor asks every business owner when they're considering um, looking at some type of exit or liquidity planning or de-risking strategy when they're converting the you know sort of their equity in the business and converting it to cash that can be diversified. Um, I'll start off with where it really doesn't work effectively, and then we'll talk about where it does and what questions should be asked. It, it really doesn't work when an owner fundamentally just wants to get a check for the full value of their business and walk away and hop on a sailboat, move to Ford and play golf the rest of their life, and really doesn't care about what they leave behind and what ultimately happens to that company once they get their their financial liquidity. And that that oftentimes is where an M&A transaction comes into play. You hire a pure investment banker that shops the company, gets the highest price through a bidding transaction, whether it's through private equity as a financial buyer or a strategic buyer. You know, the owner, what, fundamentally, when you want to check and you want to walk away and you really are done with the business and you've got no other family in the business, that's really where, in my mind, um, an ESOP is not something that even should be discussed or considered. The other point is, an ESOP, since it's a leveraged buyout, if you think about it, the cash flow of the company has to be able to support the ability to buy the company within a reasonable period of time. And kind of the rule of thumb I use is if you can buy a company and finance it because of all the tax benefits of the ESOP, if we can finance it and pay off that debt in an eight to 12 year time frame, that typically puts it in the framework where the price of the company from a multiple of the earnings that it generates, which is how you create enterprise value, ultimately that value can be paid off and financed in that time frame. If it takes longer than that, it's typically the type of company that is selling for a much higher multiple, a software company, a bioengineering company, a pharmaceutical company, where they're selling at you know, 12, 15, or 20 times um, current earnings. Um, you could never afford to finance that type of acquisition. And those companies, again, even if the owner has the philosophy where an ESOP may make sense philosophically, it's not going to work financially because an ESOP's not not going to be able to purchase the company at that kind of multiple and afford to finance it over any period of time. That would be something where we would suggest through Steve working with somebody like you, it's not an ESOP. They can look at selling it. We can hire an investment banking firm. We can support and help a client do that. But we would, before that takes place, help the client um, structure 
some type of executive benefit, phantom stock plan or stock option plan for their key management so that upon that type of liquidity event and sale, the owner is getting taken care of, getting what he wants, which is that very high multiple, but he's doing something to protect or reward their key management team in a financial way. So if the buyer comes in and then 12 months later, you know, takes care of laying off or terminating or severing the top management team, they've got some significant economic reward that they've gotten that puts them in a position that, you know, the, the owner has taken care of them and fulfilled his philosophical approach of what he wanted to do, which is to protect key people. That's really, in my mind, where ESOPs don't work. Um, now, where they do work, you know, they work very well when you've got an owner, and this gets back to the fundamentals. We talk about the financial flaw, the financial requirements. It has to be a company that generates cash flow, has consistent cash flow, you know, is uh, sells or ultimately the value is somewhere between five to eight times as a multiple of that uh, of earnings or profits. Um, the industry calls it EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. Businesses sell for a multiple of those. So construction companies, um, engineering firms, manufacturing firms, those that are sort of the foundations of, the, of America today, the mom and pop businesses, you know, that you know, can run anywhere from 10 million to $500 million in value. But owners that realize and believe the business has that kind of valuation, they fit the economic approach. Now it comes down to the philosophy. Where does an ESOP work? It's an owner fundamentally that loves the company, cares about the legacy, believes in the community and protecting and preserving the, the workforce within the, the, the sort of the geographical marketplace where they are and cares about their customers and their employees. It's the kind of owner that when they walk through their manufacturing plant is referring to people by name, knows their kids, is invited to weddings and graduations and that kind of that sort of philosophical approach. That is a business owner fundamentally that really cares about the company. Um, and in those circumstances, many of the owners don't want to walk away. You know, the business is their family and they want to stick around in an ESOP done the right way, structured the right way. All you're doing is converting their equity in the company to cash that they can redeploy and put other places, but they can still operate it, run it, act as a CEO, draw a salary, qualify for benefits, and in some circumstances, qualify for participation inside the ESOP as an employee like everybody else, but the legacy of the business will continue. Those are That's really when you look at an ESOP and when it fits the criteria of what an owner wants to do. I like the way you explain that. I mean, legacy planning is a lot of what we do at Newton One understanding that there's an opportunity to capitalize on a successful business, but also taking care of all the people that help them get there. You know, I wonder if there's been any, any studies or any kind of evidence that might link uh, performance or productivity or morale of employees that are part of an ESOP who might be performing in a, in a better manner because, you know, they're, they're eligible for the, for the profits and the proceeds of the company, just like those that founded the company. Um, have you seen anything like that? Is there anything or is that just kind of a, something that is difficult to measure? No, that's, there, there is. There's, tr- there's two key associations in the ESOP industry, the EO, um, Employee Ownership, and then there's the NCEO, National Center for ESOP Ownership. Um, and then there are a number of academic institutions. So my alma mater, um, my undergraduate alma mater, UC San Diego, has something called the BISIS Institute, which is a part of their graduate program, their business school that um, does research and supports um, ESOPs around the U.S. and does a lot of, as an academic institution, they have the financial resources to do polling and research reports and marketing reports to ESOP companies to determine what have been the impacts 
in the industry to companies when they convert from ownership to employee ownership. Ohio State is another one and also Keene State. These institutions, not only do they promote within their communities and nationally ESOPs, but they also do a tremendous amount of research around the business changes that take place for companies that do it. And I think, and don't hold me um, because it's been a while since I've seen some of these academic reports, but I believe it used to be that when a company converted from stock ownership owned by individuals to an ESOP with um, ownership across, across the platform of eligible employees, they saw an increase in annual productivity, meaning in the form of increased EBITDA and top-line revenue that ranged anywhere from 2.3% to as much as 3.5% per year. So, you know, that was relatively early in the cycle. And so, if you think about a company that normally is growing, let's say, 5% per year, and now you start applying, you know, a 7.5% to an 8.5% growth rate, you know, that's pretty significant where companies are really doubling size, you know, in every, you know, every 7 to 10 years. And so, and the employees start the more there the more the ESOP is in place, the more stock that gets released, the longer the time frame is, and the faster the debt for the acquisition gets paid off, what ends up psychologically happening is the employees get their statements every year as a retirement plan and they see how many shares have been released to them, what their vested benefit is, and what the stock value increase is. And you'll see exponential growth that takes place. Um, for those that play hockey, it's kind of like a hockey stick. The first few years when you first do an ESOP, your blade is sitting on the ice and you're having moderate growth, but you still have a lot of debt on the balance sheet. And as I mentioned before, the, the proper value for a business is one that can have the de- have all the debt for the acquisition paid off in an eight to 12 year time frame. So two to three years into the, into, the, into the transaction, you are paying off debt, but you still have a lot of the balance sheet. You are growing the company, but it's early in the business cycle. And so what starts to happen by that you know, third, fourth and fifth year, you start moving up the blade to the uh, to more of the handle and you start seeing that exponential stock value growth that takes place. And ESOP is the only real way that an employee who is a participant in a retirement plan can have direct control over what they do, impacting the size, the benefit, and the value of their retirement account. Because as we all know, you know, if you own Fidelity Magellan or Tiro Prices Technology Fund in your 401k, you know, you go out and buy a new Dell computer, you're not going to have any impact. That's not going to impact the the uh, the performance of Dell, therefore impact the, the performance of your mutual fund. But if in turn, you and a group of your employees in a company are able to more effectively manage waste, um, increase productivity, um, be more effective where you're not having in a construction company that has a defect and you control that, you do quality work up front where you don't have to go back to a job site a second or third time to correct those defects that were done originally, you become more effective and more efficient, you increase your margins and increase your profitability, and you'll see that impact directly in your statement at the end of the year when your stock value goes from $4 a share to $8 a share in a given year because you've increased profits, which gave you more cash to pay down debt, and because the company is valued based on a, on a multiple of its net income, as we talked about, uh, that multiple of EBITDA, you've increased EBITDA, therefore you're going to see that direct impact in the increasing, increasing stock value that you help create. It's really incredible when you look at it that way. Yeah, it's just it's so powerful, and it it, it speaks to the opportunity of of employees at any level to help kind of set their future in in the, in privately held companies. So it's just it, it's it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. All right, Rick, I'm going to circle back now and and try and help our audience understand the correlation that you and I know about uh, with life insurance. And I I think maybe maybe the place to start would be. Um, 
to ask you to do a little bit of an explanation of what uh, ESOP repurchase obligation studies are, because I, you know that's where where we've seen the the most impactful application of life insurance. But w- w- what does that mean? What's a repurchase obligation study? Yeah, so the repurchase obligation, if you think about it, you've got privately held stock. The ESOP is a qualified profit-sharing plan, and so the only asset typically in the ESOP trust itself, that retirement plan, is the underlying stock in a company that employees are granted, and that stock is released, and it can be over 20 years, 25 or 30 years. And so they build up that stock, they vest the benefit, and when they ultimately retire, die, get disabled, or trigger through either um, severance or termination, they're due um, the value of that stock. And so since it's privately held stock, we don't allow that stock to be taken out of the trust. It stays in the trust. And so if I'm entitled, as an example, for a benefit, I've worked for a company for 10 years and I'm owed $300,000 because that's my stock value. We don't give them the $300,000 in stock. The stock is repurchased, the idea of the repurchase liability. It is repurchased by the corporation or by the ESOP itself so that the stock stays within the organization and the employee then gets their payout that they can turn around and take as a taxable retirement plan distribution, just like a 401k or an IRA distribution, or they could roll it over into a 401k if they go to work for another employer, or they can roll it over to their IRA account and avoid paying current taxation on it. So the idea of the repurchase is one of the largest and most important characteristics of an ESOP, because as companies become more successful, profitable, pay off their debt, and more stock is released and companies grow, that repurchase obligation, that put obligation between the ESOP and the employee and the company becomes larger and larger. And so one of the things that we do, and not all companies in our industry that do what we do um, perform this service, and we don't know why, because we think it's that we and the client have a fiduciary obligation to understand this. We, when we do a transaction, extrapolate both the employee group. So we look at the actuarial census of the employees, carry that out over a projection of 20 years. We look at what the current value of the company is pre-transaction, and then we look at it post-transaction, model out the debt repayment, model out a projected growth rate of the company at a moderate rate over time to project, based on the age of the employees, a turnover rate, a death rate, a mortality, a morbidity rate for disability, a termination rate, along with a retirement rate. And that allows us to understand on a projected basis over 20 years, what we think ultimately the obligations, that repurchase obligation is going to be on a year-by-year basis. And so in, in understanding what that is, it allows the company and the board of directors of the company to understand how much money they should be setting aside on an annual basis and what those obligations are to buy the stock back from those employees in, in years by which you have requirements to repurchase their stock. And so in understanding what that obligation is actuarially and preparing for it on the front end protects the company on a long-term basis as far as the legacy for perpetuation perpetuation of the company for multiple generations. Because unfortunately in my career in, in this world, what I have seen far too many times is very successful companies do ESOPs. They do them, the owners want to do them for all the right reasons. They care about the company, but they want to get their fair market value out. They deserve to because they took risk in building it. They want to diversify. They also want to protect the legacy of this business and reward um, key employees and long-term employees for the for, for helping the family that own the company to be successful, and they want to give back. Um, the problem is, is if you don't take that repurchase funding and understand that obligation seriously, you don't set money aside and let that money compound and 
grow over time. You know, as Albert Einstein was asked the question once, which was the most powerful force in the universe? It's compounding of interest. Well, he was only partially right. It's actually tax-free compounding of interest. And so the byproduct of putting money into instruments like life insurance, structured properly, compounding over time, allows you to meet your future purchase obligations with the reserves that you build up. And when you're using um, with a large organization and using corporate-owned life insurance and you're doing it in a way that you're insuring a larger block of people, the unfortunate part of all of our lives is at some point we're going to die. And the point of using a large block of employees is there's going to be some premature deaths that take place and you can turn their mortality into a profitable event that increases the underlying rate of return that you normally are getting just on the cash value growth of the policies over time. And that's why life insurance makes so much sense as part, if not all, of the funding requirements to looking at that repurchase obligation. The cash value growth that takes place on a normal IRR basis, in addition to the mortality gains that you get over periods of time on the block of business that you're purchasing. And that's just one of, in reality, three funding requirements that really take place in most ESOP transactions through the corporation. Rick, I think the, um, I'm going to go back to the legacy comment you made earlier and the ESOP understanding that this liability is out there and there will be capital required in order to purchase the shares back at some point and in addressing that on an annual basis. And what we've seen in the market is you know, traditionally the companies, the ESOPs will, will start putting away capital, short, mid and long-term investment structured assets. And you know we we would call that the three leg stool, which is which is stable. It helps them offset some of the future obligations they may have. But by coming in with the death benefits, and and I couldn't have said it any better. We're we're, we're now utilizing death benefits that over time will pay out. And if uh, the policies are structured appropriately, the rate of return, the internal return of the premiums against death benefit at normal life expectancy are very compelling. But what we know is that unfortunately and tragically. Some folks may die prematurely, and so those rates of returns may be greater for those uh, premature deaths. And for those that have uh, uh, lives that, that, that extend beyond traditional mortality, you know, the, the returns are still very competitive. And what, what I want to note is um, when we jump into the life insurance space here, there are some clearly defined rules and regulations about who can be insured. And frankly, there's also uh, a lot of regulations around making sure that those individuals who are insured have authorized the company to go out and buy insurance on them. So, you know, this is not a, a, a backdoor writing a life insurance policy on someone. It's a very mathematical financial calculation that's done, full disclosure, and then acceptance by the employees, the executives that, that have the um, insurance written on their lives. And that's part of the the art and the science of, of the insurance uh, part of the business is, is understanding who can be insured, who should be insured, and then the appropriate premium structure so that the policies work efficiently. So that's our involvement there. I, you know, I, I think that um, you understand it. You explained it uh, really well. Sometimes it's, it's something that takes uh, you know, a little bit more of a, of a creative uh, outlook from the ESOP standpoint. Is there anything else you, you would add to the insurance uh, application that I might not have uh, addressed? Yeah, I think that's, you know, those are all very valid points and it's important. You know, what we find is, um, you know, the idea of, you know, well-designed, well-structured, very efficient use of quality um, insurance uh, and quality insurance products that are really investment-driven 
um, provide tremendous, tremendous opportunities for um, competing very favorably for, a, let's say, a managed portfolio and, and are structured very cost effectively, which makes it very competitive from that standpoint. And especially today when you've got interest rates as low as they are, you know, people say, well, you know, historically in the investment world, you'll have investment managers that talk about using bonds as the fixed asset, you know, the the, the, the stable asset within a portfolio. The challenge you have today is, you know, as the Fed has made very clear, they're, they're, they're going to most likely tighten. And as part of that, interest rates are going to go up. So the problem you've got now in, in, in putting together portfolios is how do you find, you know, bonds that provide favorable returns um, for stability and, and have protection of principle. And the insurance products are just so well designed for that purpose. The other two components are, we, we just briefly talked about the one sale, uh, the one opportunity, which is the repurchase obligation. And that's often, oftentimes the biggest, the long-term, the key characteristic of where long-term investments in insurance can be deployed. But on a short-term basis, you've got usually key man coverage. Um, so in turn, especially when you're doing partial sales, you know, if I'm, uh, if you and I are partners, Steve, and let's say, you know, at my age, I'm much older than you and I want to retire and you're going to buy me out. Um, we do it through an ESOP, which is an effective way of doing it because of the tax efficiency. The, the problem is, is I, I want to make sure that God forbid something happened to me, you know, my family gets paid off. And so, as you know, key man coverage can be deployed and put in place for that purpose. And the banks oftentimes when we're do, doing bank financing for a portion of the, the, the debt financing. The banks are going to mandate it. And you can use term insurance for that, but I've never been one to want to waste money. <clears throat> so when you start looking at you know people like you that are sophisticated in the, the wealth side and the management side and have experience in that world of how to design insurance, you can actually solve the, the key man coverage requirements with for the debt for death benefit while at the same time on an interim basis while that death benefit risk is high make sure that the policies are building up cash to get that normalized IRR it's the, the way of looking at multiple multiple solving multiple problems that we're trying to solve and using a common set of strategies to accomplish that objective and then the same is true almost in every ESOP that we do for the non-selling shareholder but key executives we layer on top of some type of executive benefit plan. So either uh, in most cases, we like using what they call a SARS plan, stock appreciation rights plan. And the trustees that are brought in to represent the employees in the ESOP trust like using these strategies so they can tie on key management to the company on top of what they get in the ESOP, they can tie them into these executive benefits. And again, you know, when you're layering on that type of strategy, you know, you can either have, as you know, in the world that you work in, unfunded or fund, uh, that funded responsibility. So unfunded liability on the balance sheet, or you can fund it over time. So when there's a triggering event, so those key uh, key executives reach the point where they're due money, you've got the reserves that are set aside to go ahead and accomplish it. Those three strategies on the corporate balance sheet are common strategies that are deployed. And oftentimes you're going to use one set of policies that will be able to be designed to meet all three of those objectives, the shorter term objectives for the key man, the midterm objectives for the executive benefits, and then the long term objectives for the repurchase liability, all solving multiple um, strategies, but using a common set of policies to accomplish the overall objectives. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. It's the old Swiss Army knife conversation. Perfect. Rick, thanks for being with us today. I know we covered a lot of material. I'm just going to ask if there's anything else that you feel will be important or you'd like to share with our audience. Well, the only thing I would say is, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of discussions and conversations um, through the end of last year talking about theoretical tax law changes that could either negatively or positively affect, um, you know, the ESOP world. 
And, uh, you know, again, I'm not a political strategist. Um, I, you know, I vote in every election, but the byproduct is I don't know where tax laws are going to go and if Biden's going to be able to get any kind of tax legislation that will be passed. But I will just say, as it related to what was being proposed, nothing in the proposed legislation was going to have a negative effect to ESOPs. It was the complete contrary. There was potential positive legislation that was going to impact the ability to do 1042s. So today we talked about the 1042, the ability to postpone and eliminate the capital gains tax. The key to that is you got to be a C-Corp when you're doing the transaction to qualify. There was provisions that were in the potential Biden Biden tax bill that would have allowed the 1042 for S corporations, which would have simplified the restructuring when you're doing ESOPs to provide equal weighting from a tax perspective to S corp ESOPs and C corporate ESOPs. So that would have been positive. The other thing that that was positively affecting ESOPs, which is why most companies in this space had record years last year, anybody that was expecting or anticipating doing any kind of transaction wanted to get it done before the tax laws increased. Because one thing that ESOPs do very effectively because of all their tax benefits, the ability to become corporately tax exempt, the ability for the owners to uh, minimize and eliminate capital gains tax, the higher tax rates would become the more emphasis and the more the more likely um, more business owners would be looking at an ESOP as an option, even if it doesn't fulfill every one of their their qualitative and philosophical um, characteristics. When you look at money in, money out, what I get net of uh, net of taxes ultimately, even though I've got to wait for all my money through an ESOP, the present value of that and the way the ESOP works would pr- would provide a f- much larger economic benefit because of the tax savings if tax rates would have gone up, which puts more emphasis on it. But that does happen. So that would be the only thing I would add. Um, I do appreciate the time today and hopefully you guys found value in this. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us, Rick. Enjoy the day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Have a good one. All right, guys. Take care. Material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.